Hello and welcome to Euractiv's Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Julia Dahm. And I'm Natasha Fett. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractiv's Agri-Food News Team. This week, more on the Industrial Emissions Directive and a chat on the upcoming Sustainable Food Systems Law. Well, hello, there we are again. Um, Here we are again. <laughs> and there we are again with a topic that, um, yeah, we've visited several times before already, an old friend or uh, an old frenemy, shall we say. I think frenemy is potentially the... <laughs> Love-to-hate <laughs> relationship. Exactly, exactly. Between everyone involved. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about the Industrial Emissions Directive. So um, just a quick recap. Um This is a directive that it's broader than agriculture, but it, it concerns agriculture and it's about reducing non-CO2 emissions, basically. Um, so it's about reducing emissions of industrial installations. And the everlasting question is, which agricultural, uh, specifically livestock um, farms, should count as industrial installations and should fall under the rules The emission rules of uh, of this directive. So that's the that's the backdrop of our discussion here. The big question here, mm, yeah. And of course, it ends up being quite contentious because where you draw the line, what the threshold is of what you know, who gets to say which farm is industrial or not, is obviously a pretty uh, a delicate issue, shall we a hot say? Topic. Yeah. Hot topic. Hot topic. And so this week, I actually uh, got my hands on uh, a leaked draft of the compromise text from. Uh, from member states. So basically, this is the minister's, will be the minister's general approach to uh, the Industrial Emissions Directive. And this is going to be presented at the meeting of environment ministers on the 16th of March. And it's quite interesting because obviously it puts, it puts forward, you know, what they're going to push for on this file. Um, there were a couple of things that stood out to me that were pretty interesting. I would say uh, probably one of the most interesting is that they the this compromised text wanted to exclude the rearing of pigs um, and cattle that were used in extensive production systems. Now, extensive production systems, I actually have to look this up. Do, do, do you know what this is, Julia? <laughs> no, I feel like it's, I mean, Intensive kind of makes sense. And then you assume that extensive is the opposite, but that's about as far as it goes. That's exactly what it is. Exactly what it is. So basically extensive um, agriculture is, is exactly what we said, the opposite of intensive farming. So it's a low input production system. It primarily relies on, on natural, semi-natural grassland. You know, it has very small inputs of labor and fertilizers and capital, um, at least relative to the land area that's being farmed. And so this here, we're talking mainly things like, you know, raising sheep and cattle um, on mountainsides. And like hill farming, things like this, where it's, you know, it's a lot of land, but not a high amount of productivity. Um, and so this was uh, looking at basically talking about how livestock that were raised on these extensive farming systems shouldn't be included in the Industrial Emissions Directive, although it did recognize the need to include, to, to expand the current directive um, to include more pig, poultry and cattle farms. So that there was that. It says, yes, we do need to do this. We acknowledge that, you know, it causes significant pollutions, but They want this extensive um, farming to be exempt from the directive. And the other thing that was quite interesting is that the compromise text puts forward suggestions basically to kind of stagger the rollout of the industrial emissions directive based on the size of the farm. So instead of being, instead of saying, you know, this size of farm it immediately comes under the directive, they kind of wanted a, a, a more of a stepwise approach. Um, so it said that the directive should only really come into play on the ground within four years if a farm has a capacity of 600 livestock units. And livestock units are one of these technical 
uh, <laughs> technical terms that we love. Um, I think we should start calling them cow equivalents because that's basically what it is. It's like true. One livestock unit is, is one adult cow or exactly. the equivalent amount of a different animal. <laughs> exactly. Cow equivalents. I quite like this. We should try and get this maybe renamed. Let's try and push for this because honestly, every time I have to explain livestock unit, what's a livestock unit, et cetera, et cetera, it's, it, it's quite complex. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Basically, it's the equivalent of one grazing adult dairy cow producing 300,000 kilograms of milk annually. It's quite specific. And then, as you said, the other, you know, other kinds of livestock are, uh, but use that's used as a basis so there's more pigs and then even more chickens that you know <laughs> that add up to one livestock unit and so they were saying that basically it should only impact uh it'd be, it should only come into force within four years for farms that have a capacity of 600 livestock units within five years for those with 400 livestock units and within six years for those with a capacity of 250 livestock units or more and just for reference the commission's current proposal is for the directive to impact farms with 150 livestock units or more. So these numbers we're talking about here are nowhere near the realm of, you know, the kind of current proposal and nowhere near the timeline as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, if this is the, if this is the compromise text that's put forward, how they're going to manage to bridge that gap because it's a pretty big one. Um, so those are the kind of interesting things that I pulled out of the compromise text and you can read the article that's on Euractive, um, but also following the theme of the industrial emissions directive. Um, this week, uh, we actually managed to catch up with EU Agriculture Commissioner Janusz Wojciechowski and I managed to ask him a few questions to hear his perspective on the industrial emissions directive and the discussion around it and the controversies. Um, so I managed to get a little clip and uh, here is what Commissioner Wojciechowski had to say. I wanted to ask you, we didn't touch upon the industrial emissions directive in you spoke about livestock farming in mm -hmm. there and the impact on small farmers and there's been a lot of criticism over the proposal of 150 livestock units for small farmers and then mm -hmm. there's a lot of discussion about this uh, around this right now mm -hmm. i just wondered if you your take on this and its impact on small farmers whether you still stand by the 150 livestock units in the proposal uh, the initial proposal was 100. It was my initiative to increase to the 150 livestock units. But the generally, this is a controversial uh, directive uh, and uh, there is discussion across the member states. I presented also my, my reservation uh, for this directive because there is no, not only the question of the number of livestock, but mm -hmm. the, the most important is the the methods of the of the of the farming like especially in the cattle farming is uh, they are farms with uh, for summer grazing with uh, extensive grazing this is uh, there is not similar to to industry this mm -hmm. this is a question of the sectors and uh, first of all the type of uh, of, of farming We've had criticisms from member states, also from from the agri committee in the parliament. I was just wondering your take on on those criticisms that um, that the figure of one hundred and fifty livestock units is is too low um, or too high for small farmers. <laughs> no, because I, I say again, this is not the main question of the of the numbers of of livestock units, because this is the different situation is the sector the the peak uh, peak uh, farms different in the cattle farms uh, different in the poultry farms this is um, 
No, the, the commission position is 150 livestock units. I'm member of the commission. I have to, to <laughs> support the pos commission position. No, the, the, the officially. But um, I think that um, no, I'm sure that uh, this is we, we should more into account the specific situation ac across the sector. And the, first of all, the method, if there is in the farm over 150 uh, livestock units, uh, the, the, the farms can be also sustainable, no, no industrial. This mm -hmm. is not the question of the, the, the number of, of units. There was recently a lot of backlash because there was evidence that the data that the proposal was based on was from 2016 rather than from more recent data and that this would yes, impact yes, a yes, higher yes, proportion. Yes. Uh, I know this, this uh, problem, but when uh, my explanation is that then when uh, this draft of uh, regulation was prepared, the, the last available data were from 2016. Now we have the data from 2020. After that census, uh, it, it was the reason. But of course, we need to... to uh, our decision decision should be based always on the actual mm. data, but there is the problem to to, to you know the system of collection data. Not always we have not always the last uh, data. So should it be changed result. now, revised based on the twenty twenty data? Do you think to take that into no, account? Yes, this is the the new situation because uh, we have observed that the process of, of uh, concentration of, uh, of the farm uh, farms in the some some member states yes hmm. And this week for our guest on the podcast, we're speaking with Isabel Pagliotta. And Isabel is a policy officer for sustainable food systems at the Green NGO, the European Environmental Bureau. And we're talking to Isabel about this upcoming sustainable food systems law, what it is and what we can expect from this, but also about the leak of an impact assessment. This is the impact assessment that comes ahead of the law. Um, and she had a little look at it and we're going to hear her take. So here's what she had to say. Let's talk about this framework firstly. We're expecting this sustainable food systems law proposal this year. Um, what is this? Maybe you can give us a quick overview for our listeners. Um, what do we know about this so far? So far, we know that, well, the framework was announced in the farm to fork strategy uh, back in 2020 and uh, with the intention of ensuring that, uh, and I'm quoting here, <laughs> products placed on the EU market are increasingly sustainable um, and initiating a transition to sustainable sustainability in the European food system. Um, so that is a, a pretty ambitious um, feat. Um, what that will specifically entail, as far as we know, will be an enabling framework. That's the wording that's been used by the Commission more lately. So a sort of overarching frame defining general definitions principles and objectives for the whole EU food system. Pretty ambitious task, as you, as you yes. said. It's quite a big, big undertaking. And so this week we saw there was uh, this leaked impact assessment of, of the proposal, basically evaluating different kind of policy options under the sustainable food systems law. And I know you've taken a look at this as well. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm curious to hear from you, you know, what what perhaps for you is the most interesting take home messages from this? Was there anything that stood out to you as particularly good or particularly bad as the case may be? What were your kind of initial thoughts on this? Um, yeah, well, my initial uh, reaction when I saw it, saw it was, wow, 
once again, uh, this is uh, this is a big big piece of work, and the amount of work that has clearly gone into it shows it shines through. Um, recognizing the progress that has been done uh, within the commission in terms of framing is is I think the first point. Um, Clearly, um, the problem is being taken very seriously by the Commission and they've made great progress and a great effort in defining the problem, defining the scope of action, which is the whole food system. So it's something that is very difficult even to think about, let alone frame in a uh, piece of legislation. Um, But they clearly spell out that actors in the food system do not systematically operate sustainably and the current food environment sort of predispose consumers um, and other food system actors to make unsustainable choices and that the middle chain, so that's retail, advertisers, manufacturing, have a disproportionate influence in shaping those food environments and therefore our diets. Um, and definitely the recognition of um, policy incoherence in EU food policy as being a main obstacle to transition to increase sustainability. I'd say those are the top um, positive takeaways from that in terms of framing. Uh, in more concrete terms, um, they list a number of preferred policy options um, relating to, uh, well, labeling, uh, food sustainability labeling, sustainable public procurement, and minimum sustainability requirements. Um, and if I'd have to go and pick a really positive one, I'd say it's the preferred policy option for sustainable public procurement. So you mentioned mandatory requirements for sustainable public procurement. Maybe you can just talk us through that a little bit. So public procurement, what does that really mean? Uh, mandatory requirements, you know, is that something you're in favour of? Uh, what kind of impact do you see this having? Because it, it does put a, a strong emphasis on public procurement. Um, so, you know, how impactful do you see that being? Yeah, well, I mean, public procurement has been often defined in talking about food system transition to sustainability as low hanging fruit. Um, the reason for that is that addressing public procurement means harnessing uh, public purchasing power um, to make sure that the food that is served in all public canteens and in institutions and so on uh, is as sustainable as it possibly can be, which would seem like a sort of obvious thing, given that it's the food being served by the authorities making the laws about um, food sustainability. And we would definitely, we are definitely in favor of um, mandatory uh, criteria for public procurement, um, and which is actually the preferred policy option that is mentioned in the impact assessment, uh, option 3B. So uh, is it the option three, sorry. So yeah, the introduction of uh, mandatory general and specific requirements. um, And that translates into a general requirement to procure food sustainably in public institutions. Um, And also the impact assessment includes a clear reference to both environmental and social health dimensions of sustainability. So um, we're very, uh, let's say, impressed with that uh, level of ambition on public procurement. Um, It is the most ambitious uh, policy option listed. And um, yeah, I definitely say that's a a very big positive um, signal coming from from the impact assessment. Yeah, it definitely stood out to me as one of the more, you know, as you said, it was the most 
uh, ambitious option listed and it was the one that they also said they preferred. Um, and let's talk about another thing you mentioned there, sustainability labelling. So this time it didn't go for the most ambitious option that was mm. that was listed. They spoke about voluntary harmonised sustainability labelling. Um, I mean, how, how what was your take on how important you think it is to have a sustainable sustainability labelling system? Um, and if it's voluntary kind of harmonised across the EU, how... Uh, how impactful do you think that could be, really? Yeah, um, well, the thing about labelling, um, regardless of the policy option you go for, is that it's when you're trying to affect the consumption side and really shift diets, shift consumption choices, shift beha- consumer behaviours in uh, retail environments, you know, it's just a complementary policy measure. It doesn't mean it's useless, Um, It can be very helpful and it definitely is key in terms of improving transparency and uh, availability of information to consumers. But there there is plenty of of research showing how labelling has limited effectiveness on its own in shifting consumer behaviour. So when we talk about shifting consumption and diets, which is absolutely key if we're aiming to make our food system more sustainable. Um, Labels can only go that far, but what you would need is a consistent and cross-cutting food environment approach that really aims at changing the context and the the signals and the incentives in, um, in the at the retail level and and around decision making consumer decision making so as to make the healthiest and most sustainable option the uh most affordable attractive advertised and uh um and available one you've been fairly positive really about the the impact assessment so far but there's also some areas perhaps i mean are there some areas that's the question actually um <laughs> that you think that, that it could actually be improved i mean there were there some areas that you think the that it was a bit weak or that maybe a bit vague uh we were pretty disappointed to uh see that uh there was no reference to targets whatsoever um we find that quite worrying in that um the explanation for that also is that um, apparently setting EU-wide targets is impossible due to the complexities of the food system, although it has actually been done in other policy areas, um, such as with climate, where setting climate targets has really allowed the public and private sectors to focus their efforts and sort of redirect their long-term strategies and investments towards uh, a clear goal in a clear direction. And we need the same for food sustainability. Um, and that uh, also leads me to another sort of negative point uh, from that I noticed in the impact assessment, which is governance. Because if we think about breaking down targets across uh, member states and their extremely diverse food system, these would obviously had, have to be translated. Undoubtedly, a very complicated process, but in order to fit um, national contexts. Um, And in order to do that, what you need is uh, tools, governance tools uh, that can allow to translate EU-wide objectives, which we know will be set in the framework, to national contexts. Um, So how to do that, what those tools would look like, um, 
there's a variety of options. One could be uh, some sort of national strategic plan, national sustainable food plan um, to adapt um, to national circumstances. And these would also help with member state buy-in um, because food policy is quite a thorny area to deal with at the EU level, and it hasn't uh, so far. Everyone has an opinion on food, um, and it, it's so intimately tied to our identity, our culture, our history, that, um, of course, it's going to be difficult for member states to buy into an EU-wide direction of travel, let's say. Um, but at the same time, as is clearly recognised in the impact assessment, uh, the problems we need to address transcend national borders. Um, in some cases, they're global. Um, so if we want to achieve uh, that much-needed transition, we really need to have a consistent approach. Um, and one last point I want to make on governance is not only about translating objectives to the national level and getting member state buy-in, but it's also really relevant for social sustainability. Um, the food system is defined at this point nearly by extreme power concentration, um, and that also translates to unequal access to policy-making fora, participation, participation in decision-making processes, and so on. So we really need better mechanisms for citizens' engagement and robust uh, rules for public participation. Um, so I'd say on the aspect of governance, there was quite a bit of vagueness in the impact assessment. Um, I think the, the wording is some policy governance tools or something like that, uh, but no further definition is given, and that's quite concerning. It's really tough to draw up something to work on food systems and so on, but we really need to do that. And right now, the framework is our best shot, <laughs> what we've got. So that's all from us this week. And this week, like every week, the Euractive AgriFood podcast was put together by Euractive's AgriFood team. That's Yulia Dam and Natasha Foote, with the technical support of Evie Curie. This podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Stitcher and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the latest news from the EU. I'm Natasha Foote. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.